Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Welcome back, Tiger fans, to Rock'em Nation's football podcast. I'm Nate Edwards. That's Brandon BK Kylie. This is Before the Box Score. The nothing is happening this Saturday edition. I promise. Nothing, nothing at all is happening. You've got a free weekend to do whatever you want. BK, how are you going to fill your your full college football Saturday without having to watch the Missouri football team play? So my fiance is heading down to Disney World this weekend. Um, and therefore I will be doing absolutely nothing, Nate. <laughs> and that might mean that there is some college football that happens to be on in the background because I may or may not have to write about it on Saturday, but otherwise that's about it, man. What are you doing with your wonderful day off? I want to be taking care of two sick kids. There you go. That and it's going to be delightful. way more enjoyable than anything the Missouri football team could provide. for That's me. right. So here we are. It is week 10. Your Missouri Tigers are sitting at four and four back at 500, which is nice. Of course, taking off the facetious blinders, we understand that Missouri is playing Georgia in Athens this week. It's the number one team in the country. We'll get to that. 
wanted to first do what we always do and kind of close the book on Vanderbilt. And I think there's kind of a larger discussion that we will be having about the game overall, mostly focused on a particular position that you might have some interest in. But first, let's just talk about the game at large. I put the Beyond the Box score up uh, on the RockingNation.com yesterday. So you all have had time to kind of digest that. BK, were there any, I mean, first of all, did you watch it again? And second of all, um, upon further investigation, was there anything that you noticed that we didn't catch the first time around? Yeah, I went back and rewatched every throw that Connor Bazelek made in the game. And we can talk about that a little bit further here in just a little bit. Um, I, I think the thing that I noticed the most of, though, is just the lack of taking advantage of their opportunities that Missouri had in the passing game. There were plenty of opportunities for them to be able to go out there and make some big plays just didn't seem to connect a whole lot on them. Um, so that was my biggest takeaway. What was your biggest takeaway on, uh, upon your rewatch? I'll say, I mean, I was kind of impressed with the defense. That kind of sounds weird to say. And I understand that my bar is, you know, in the mantle of the earth at this point. But like at the same time, I did see some different approaches. I did see some, some more effort plays. I think a lot of that does stem from Chad Bailey having a great game. Yeah. Um, he finished, uh, he finished the game with six tackles, uh, solo and, and assisted two tackles for loss. One of those was a sack. Um, so two havoc plays. And that's, we really hadn't seen that much from Chad Bailey in that department anyway. And he, he did really well. Granted it was against Vanderbilt, but still, um, I really liked kind of what he brought to the linebacking position. It's, it's, it's more than what we had seen in the past. Then again, Vanderbilt still ran for a ton of yards. We talked about that, but it wasn't so much the three yards, five yards in a cloud of dust that we've kind of been seeing previously, where it's just no matter what, opposing running backs are getting, you know, at least two to three yards every time they get the ball. This was this was not so much that. This was Missouri giving up basically a handful of big plays on the ground and mostly bottling up everything else. Now, part of that is because, you know, Mike Wright only ran it 11 times instead of 22 times, which is what I would have done uh, if I was Vanderbilt's offensive coordinator. But that being said... Missouri held Vanderbilt, uh, if you take out the big plays, which I know that's such a stupid thing to say out loud. I know, I know, I know. If you take out the big plays, they averaged 3.9 yards or 3.1 yards per carry. 29 rushes, 3.1 yards per carry. Most of their yards, 173 of those yards, came on four plays. Gain of 19, gain of 15, gain of 69, and gain of 70. So again, against the worst team in the world, Missouri's front six actually did a pretty good job of bottling up the run. They still let some big ones go, but I was happy to see that understanding that it's not actually fixed. It's just a really bad opponent. Still made me happy for sure. And it's, it's definitely not fixed, but it's better uh, or was against, as you said, a very bad opponent. I do wonder how much of that game in terms of the way that we evaluate it changes if they just don't allow those two really big runs. Cause like 19 and 15 yards, that's going to happen every week. You, you're just, you're mm-hmm. going to see that even against SEMO, even against the less, the, the worst teams on your schedule, uh, they're going to be able to get theirs, especially against a defense like Missouri's. 
the 69 and 71 yard runs, that's what you've got to try to eliminate moving forward. You've got to, even if they are able to get to the second level, your safeties just have to make those plays. And they weren't able to, they didn't, and it ended up going for 140 yards on two carries. And if you didn't have that, and again, as you said, you can't eliminate those, but if they did in the game, like if those plays were actually made, and instead of going for 140, they go for 20, I mean, we're talking about 35 carries basically in this game for 140 yards. It's a pretty good game defensively. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you'd feel pretty good about that. But that's the next step. You, you just you have to eliminate those massive plays that go against you. And it's been a theme this year. If it was a one off and this was new and this was random and it was weird to watch, it would be different. It wasn't. That's what we've watched all season long. <laughs> I did want to point something out and I'm not I'm not throwing the kid on the bus. I want to be absolutely clear here. But Jalen Carly's. um let me back up a little bit. I was, like I said, I was watching the Central Michigan game earlier today. If you follow me on Twitter, I got a sick kid. So we, we're just rewatching Mizzou games. So we went back and having Jalen Carlis as the, as the uh, starting safety instead of Jelani Williams brought a whole new kind of different approach for the defense in that first game. And then it carried over with Kentucky and, and Simo and all that stuff. And, and I do think he is the best safety kind of going forward. He's a young uh, piece that you can build around. Young man also has the worst tackling accuracy on the team. But why is that? Well, he often is the last guy to try and bring down the ball carrier who inevitably breaks through the front, the front, the front lines and is now sprinting down the field. So he has a 71.8% tackling success rate. Like he tries to make a tackle. He brings that person down 71% of the time. He does that. Now, feels like 80% of the time <laughs> the guy is running right at him and he is going, Oh God. And running right after him and trying to take a good angle and take it and take him down. Martez Manuel is typically not around. Why? Because he's usually playing really close to the line along with Sean Robinson, especially in the beginning of the year when Sean was not being walked down as almost a third linebacker. So Jalen Carlos has been put in some terrible positions um, as for, for this defense because he ends up being the last guy who can make a tackle and only 71% of the time does at the same time, he needs to get better because he, well, he's getting a lot of practice number one, but number two, um, it, you got to figure out your angles. You got to figure out a way to bring the guy down because he's, he's it. So it's not fair that he's put in that position, but this is what it is. And I, I'm not saying we rotate him out. I'm just saying he's got to work on his open field tackles because if he can make just a couple of those, Yes, you missed the 69, 70 yard gains and they turn into 20 and then you get, you know, you get a couple of other downs to survive. So you can't really fix that now. It's just something that I wanted to point out because it's uh, going back, knowing what you know now and looking at the defense in the first game, you're like, oh, wow, that was a that was a lot of red flags all at once that we just kind of looked right past. It did portend future failures, um, turns out. And at the time, we we're just like, oh, this is weird. Central Michigan's running all over them. Maybe they just have a really great offensive line. Nope. <laughs> nope. It, it ended up being something that was definitely worth monitoring moving forward. And we learned that the very next week against Kentucky, who also we said, oh, they must just have a really good line. They do. Also, Missouri was bad. So <laughs> when you look back on it now, it's like, oh, OK, maybe we should have recognized that. And Jalen Carlisle is, is a good player. And for being as young as he is and starting at the back end and having such little experience, he's had a really good season, man. He's had he made he's made some big time plays on the back end. 
And you expect, honestly, young safeties to make mistakes, whether that be on angles, whether that be missing tackles, or if that means, hey, a play that they should have made tracking a ball down, they just couldn't quite get there, whatever it is. And for him, it's the tackling. The, the tackling and the angles at times are an issue. And I think that was the same thing, if I'm not mistaken, for uh, Ian Simon early in his career, especially. Mm-hmm. I, I think it can get fixed. I don't think that he's ever going to be like some great strong safety or anything like that. But you don't need him to be because he's really good on the back end and he's got excellent range and he has the ability to play that deep free safety spot, which is the most valuable thing you could have back there. But he's just got to be a little bit more sure with some of his tackles. And over the next year or two, I do think you're going to see more of that. But right now, it's a liability for Mizzou. Whenever the linebackers aren't able to make plays at the second level, and unfortunately for the Tigers, they just haven't had a whole lot of linebackers that have made plays at the second level this year. That being said, Chad Bailey's an upgrade, and he is definitely something worth building around. Yeah. Ian Simon and Matt White. Mm Mm-hmm. Those are the safeties I think of that got a lot more crap than they deserved because they were just, yeah, you get, you get lined up one-on-one and you got to make an open field tackle and you miss it. Guess what? We always remember the misses in that situation. We don't remember the ones where they actually got it. And like Matt White was, he was certainly not like a dynamic safety. He wasn't William Moore back there, but he was good. He was the starting safety on that 2013 defense. Like he he did a pretty good job of containing and in that last year he was actually pr- quite good at open field tackles and kind of limiting the damage. It just takes some time. It just takes it reps, it takes experience. Yep. And yeah, you know, for 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 Carlisle, I mean, god, what he's a second year player? Mm-hmm. Yeah, second year. Second year freshman. So he has already doubled the snaps that he took from last season. He's already exceeded the games played. He's got 27 tackles, a tackle for loss, three interceptions, a pass broken up, and a forced fumble. Like, that's great. <laughs> He's still got another four years if he wants them. Five years if, if he takes a red shirt. So, like, it's just, this is the these are the kind of growing pains you have when you're a young player, uh, especially on the defense. That is a lot of effort and skill and less science and less, you know, tactics. And it's just like, well, you just got to get it done. And, you know, when you, when you go up against a lot of veteran players, older players at the college level, sometimes you look a little silly, but that's okay. Um, so I think he's a great piece to build around. And, and I think Chad Bailey was did a very good job um, last week as well. I don't know what that means going forward. Chad Bailey is a sophomore or fourth year sophomore. <laughs> that's a funny phrase to put out there. Fourth year sophomore. Um, so he's got two more years if he wants it. Um, who knows if that's true and if, if he ends up doing that or not, but I think he could, I think think he's the type of guy that could, I think so too. I mean, he came in as, as, uh, the only four star, uh, in his recruiting class. And I think expectations were lumped on him quickly and he never, he didn't meet him. So he kind of fell to the back of the pack. But if you think of your spine, if you think of kind of right up the middle, yeah, Mikai Wingo, we're looking at a Chad Bailey. And now like a, a Jalen Carlisle. And, and that's that's a really solid core to to work around. They're all very young. So there's going to be some glitches. There's going to be some mistakes. But you want that spine in the defense to be solid. And they're going to kind of grow up. They're going to grow up in this defense together. So by two years from now, God, this could be a really solid threesome right here that everyone else builds around. Once you get some defensive ends, once the corners get some experience, this could be a killer defense. It's just, it's again, it's not going to be this year. Yeah. And you, 
you need some of the young pass rushers that they've been able to acquire over the last couple of years through their recruiting to develop. Uh, you need another linebacker to emerge. And as you mentioned, you're probably going to need another outside cornerback to become like a legit shutdown guy. That's the one thing they don't have right now. I think you, you've you seen Chris Abrams drain has emerged as a real option as a slot corner, a, a pretty good player, frankly, who's probably gone a little more under the radar than he should this season. He's had his ups and downs, but welcome to the cornerback position. That's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I think Ennis Rakestraud gets a lot of crap. Some of it is deserved for the way that he has played this year. And there have been a couple of moments where the, maybe the effort wasn't where you would want it to be. But overall, I, I do think for a young player who's getting the matchups that he is, he's shown enough flashes that he's worthy of being in consideration for a starter moving forward. And you're missing one other guy. And maybe they have one of those guys, whether it be currently committed or from one of their previous recruiting classes who's going to develop into that place. But you're getting closer. Now, now you're building pieces. You, you have the building blocks of what can be a decent defense. And it's about continuing to add on to that. Maybe next year you're able to get one or two more guys to it. And then by year three, maybe you have the makings of what can be a good defense. I don't know if that happens with Steve Wilkes at the helm. Um, I don't know if it doesn't, but that's that's really the question they need to ask in the offseason is, hey, how much of the improvement that we saw this year defensively is a credit to Steve Wilkes? And do we think he's the guy moving forward? I would personally say probably not. I still believe that, and I think that is going to be shown once again this weekend against Georgia, but that's the big question that they've got to ask next. Yeah. I, I, for for Abrams Drain, he's played the nickel, uh, the nickel cornerback for most of the year. Last week, he played on the outside, and he it was actually pretty good. Uh, he Most of the time, he was lined up with um, Will Shepard, who is, I believe... He was their leading Vanderbilt's leading receiver going into the game. Um, and he, he did pretty well. Like if you look at the, the targets and the catches for, uh, for Will Shepard, he was targeted five times and only one catch mm-hmm. for nine yards. He had a really good game last week. So, you know, how much of that was, you know, Abrams drain taking him away. How much of that was scheme? I don't know. Tough to tell, but when his number was called, like he did a really good job of shutting the dude down Again, Vanderbilt. I understand, but he still did it. This is a converted receiver we're talking about. So I don't know, like long-term, do I want him on the outside or do I want him playing nickel? I don't know. I don't particularly care. I think he's really good, but it goes further to your point. If not him, then who is the outside guy? Mm-hmm. And I think you and I both would love for Dalen Carnell to be that guy, but really just anybody. <laughs> DJ Jackson has seen 67 snaps th- so far this year, uh, but like Davian Sistrunk's only been out for seven. Uh, Snoop Reeves is out for the year. Um you know, like Ish Burdine has 116 snaps, but he's just so rarely used. So it's like, I don't green and Evans are gone after this year. So what, I don't know who steps up. I really don't. And you got Marcus Scott in the pipeline coming through, uh, assuming that he signs, but there's really no other corners. This is kind of the bash that you have. And they're all super, super, super young and any youth in the passing game, whether that's receivers, quarterbacks or cornerbacks, defensive backs, Youth leads to glitches. So this could be a glitchy pass pass defense for the next couple of years as this youth grows into it. But the youth that has been playing and basically just Abrams draining a little bit of Chris Sheeran, like you, you see it and you like it. I don't know who the next candidate for stepping up is, but he's going to have two really good safeties to back him up. So that'll be really nice. 
And it very well um, may come through the transfer portal as well. That's the other thing. Is could. any of these any of these positions that you're looking for where you might need another guy to step up? Like defensive end comes to mind immediately. Cornerback, another linebacker. Offensive um, the, lineman. Yeah, but I'm thinking just specifically defensively with this conversation sure. we're having. Absolutely, I'm with you though. Uh, that's where the transfer portal comes in, whether it be junior college or guys that have been at the power five level previously or jumping up a level. Th- those are those are the types of things that you can look for there. And I think Mizzou is going to have to be super aggressive in the portal this year again. Yeah, as as we always do. Um, so we've got with the new rules, you can replace. Crap, I've already forgotten eight transfers, right? Yeah, I mean they they can basically replace as many as they need to. Like if they, for the spots that we're talking about, you can pretty much go get a starter if you need to at any of them. Right, but you still, I mean, you got 15 scholarships right now. You can take in 25 plus however many transfers you lose. Mm-hmm. So let's say it's eight. That that what's what 33, 33 guys that you can bring in. I don't know if that's going to be the case. Um, I think for early signing day, we're going to have 15. Maybe a couple more, but just based off of how this defense is played, you you just got to think that they're going to load up on transfer defenders. Mm-hmm. Just end of story. Because all their high school re- recruits so far, the overwhelming amount are on the offensive side. You've got 10, 10 guys currently committed on offense and only five on defense. Two defensive tackles, a linebacker, a corner, and a safety. So, if you take that class right there, and then you add, let's say, three or four more high school guys, maybe they're on offense, maybe they're on defense, whatever, that still gives you, plus whatever you lose in transfers, like you can gain, you can get a lot of guys to the transfer portal. Now, that's not always the right answer. We don't have a huge sample size on how transfers fit in or impact or what have you just on a team to team basis. Clearly I thought Allie green was going to be a star for this team, <laughs> right? Look at Texas state. <laughs> Look at Texas state who only recruited one high school kid and then took all transfers from the power five. They suck. They suck out loud. You, I think, I think it was Bud Elliott who said a couple years ago, when you take a transfer, you take their their high school rating, it was a four star, knock it down one star, because they couldn't make it on their former team, and now they're starting from scratch. You might as well discount them a little bit. So four stars turn into three stars, three stars turn, turn into two stars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, that's just kind of to set expectations. But there there can be some guys out there, some some players out there who can make a difference. You're assuming that Drinkwitz and the staff can scout them and understand what they're looking for and see something and turn them like, okay, we can, we can make this guy work, but kind of like stocking up on JUCOs stocking up on transfers is a little risky because it's trying to fill an immediate need and hope they, they, they gel culturally, they gel with the program, but then you also lose them in two to three years and then you're turning around and having to do it again. So this is what Kansas ran into when Charlie Weiss did Juco, 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 because they just kept overhauling their roster every two years and couldn't build anything. Um, so you got to be a little bit careful on how you balance out your classes that way. But if you take on some fr- some freshman transfers or heck, even some sophomore transfers, um, they'll start immediately. And you're hoping that you're getting some you know highly ranked ones that came out of high school who just couldn't cut it at a, at a major program. 
um, or some proven dudes from the FCS or the G5 level and hope they just plug and play. It's a little bit risky, but this defense really needs an infusion of talent. Kind of culture be damned. Um, so <laughs> we have a lot to play with, um, but there is a limitation certainly as far as transfers go based off of who we lose once the season's concluded. And I would guess we lose probably eight. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. If not more, um, I, I think there's a, a chance that you see a, a decent number of guys who maybe they were Barry Odom recruits or um, maybe they're just guys that aren't happy with their current roles. I think you could see a decent number of guys transfer after the season. That's to be expected in a, mm-hmm. in a new regime um, where you've got a coaching change after a couple of years, guys realize, Oh, okay. This is probably just not going to work for me. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And you go out and try to find the, their replacements. Maybe that's a one year gap stop or stop gap. Maybe that is somebody, as you mentioned, who's a freshman that you think can come in and play for you right away, even if they're not necessarily going to be a starter. They could be a contributor. And then you've got maybe a two-year starter after that. These things are all fine, and you're going to have opportunities to do so via the portal. They just got to be smart with it. They've got to make sure that they have a little bit better of a hit rate going into next year than they did this year, because as excited as I was about Allie Green and... um. Blaze Aldridge, Caleb Evans, Blaze Aldridge just hasn't quite gone according to plan. I Allie Green is out of the cornerback rotation. Blaze Aldridge (laughs) is losing reps at linebacker because he's I mean, at best, your third third option right now at the linebacker spot. You got to have a better hit rate next year than you have this year. Mookie Cooper's injured. EJ and Doma Olgar has barely seen the field. Despite both starters being out right now, too. Yeah, Evans is good. Wood was a starter last week, and then Green and Aldridge. So it's risky, but you just, this team needs the infusion of talent. (laughs) And then you hope that you hit. So um, that all stemmed from just talking about Vanderbilt, uh, mostly Hmm. from a defensive standpoint. Just, I I think there are some things to build around, but it is going to be a a long-term build. And I think, well, we all should have anticipated that. When Drinkwitz was hired to try and turn this thing around and make it an SEC caliber team, sometimes you need to do things to create an SEC caliber roster. Transfers are going to be one of those things. Taking your lumps by playing younger guys is going to be another. And then just, you know, injuries kind of thin out the roster and we're all still trying to figure out what's going on and everyone's frustrated in this terrible season and all that stuff. It's just, it's tough. It's tough right now. But if you squint, you can see some things that you can like long-term. And so I was, I was decently impressed with what the defense can do. I think there are some things there, just not this year. Offensively, Tyler Beatty is awesome. And that's about the extent of my offensive analysis for 2021. <laughs> he, he's very good. As we have mentioned a million different times. Um, I think JJ Hester is a guy that is clearly earning or should be earning more opportunities on the outside and I, I think the offensive line has mostly been fine this year. It, it hasn't been good, but I think it's mostly been fine. It's basically been what I expected coming into the season. Uh, but there's one big question mark moving forward, and that's at the quarterback position. Because Connor yeah. Bazelak has just not taken the step. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think on Sunday we decided that's what you were going to write about, and I'm glad you did. Because you really did a pretty good deep dive on on what he's been doing, and 
how he, well, he's not progressing. He, he's just staying the same. Um, but there are just some kind of obvious issues and, and you wrote about it and, uh, yeah, let's hear it. What do you, what do you see from his tape? So we talked about this a little bit off air before we started, just to kind of peel back the curtain for people. I think we have, we have almost made this feel worse than it actually is. Connor Bazelak is not a bad quarterback. Connor Bazelak is the same guy that he was last year. And that may sound strange to hear, but the reason why it feels different this year is because the expectations are different. And when you went into last season, I think we all thought it had the chance to be a pretty bad year. And then Basilak was solid, and he did so against all Power <laughs> 5 competition, and you mm-hmm. had the running game that you were able to lean on. He had a few big moments, especially against LSU, and you look back on it, you're like, wow, okay, uh, maybe there's something to build on here. And oh, by the way, he was super young and had no previous real experience other than like two games, I think, one game really, as a starter in 2019. So it it surprised you a little bit. Surprised me, I can speak for myself. And in the end, it was seven touchdowns, six interceptions against Power 5 exclusively competition a year ago. Well, fast forward to where he's at in 2021 and just kind of looking at the overall numbers first. He's at five touchdowns, six interceptions this year against his Power 5 competition or against his uh, SEC competition. More or less the same, like a slight Mm -hmm. step back in terms of the touchdown to interception ratio than where it was a year ago. He's completing 67% of his passes just like he did a year ago. He's averaging 6.4 yards per attempt this year against conference foes. Last year it was right at seven. So it it's dropped off a little bit, but it's not super substantial in terms of the yards per attempt. He's basically been the same guy with slightly lower yards per attempt this year than last. So in other words, he hasn't really changed a whole lot. That being said, there are real problems. And this is where the expectations come in, where it's like, okay, you thought he was going to take a next step. Why hasn't he? Well, I found about three things that seemed to be real themes throughout, especially the Vandy game. But these have been issues for him throughout the season. The first one is that he's not trusting his eyes. And what I mean by that is he'll have a guy that comes open very quickly. Missouri's offense right now is a quick game passing offense more often than not. And so you've got a lot of hitches, a lot of stop routes, a lot of guys where it's third down is really where you see this a lot. Third and five, third and six, they'll run basically to the sticks and it's Barrett Bannister time, right? We know how this works. They're going straight to him. He's going to run to the sticks and he's going to stop, turn around. And right then, you know that Basilek's got to have the ball out. Except that he doesn't. He doesn't get it out quick enough, even though Bannister is open and there is a split second where if he throws it right now, right as he's turning around, we've got a free first down. He waits. He wants to make sure he's going to stay open and there's not going to be a mistake. I think some of that is because of the interceptions that have taken place this year. That's me playing armchair quarterback, though. Um, He waits. He hesitates. And then he gets covered. And now Basilek starts to feel the pressure. He's moving around a little bit. He spikes it into the ground. Fourth down. Now they've got a punt. So that's been a consistent theme this year, especially on third down. Another issue, the shot plays. He had a really big shot play over the top against Vanderbilt to J.J. Hester late in the first quarter. It was 10 to 7, about a minute 40 left. It was first and 10. Perfect opportunity. And Missouri was right around midfield. Perfect opportunity to run a shot play on a play action pass. So they do so. Play action. Basilek is able to drop back. He's got enough time. He's got J.J. Hester running a post and he has just enough separation. It's not a ton. But he's got the cornerback on his back hip as he's running towards the post. He's coming from the left side and he's veering towards his right. 
it's there for him. All he's got to do, and by the way, the safety has come down. He bit on the play action. So now you've got free roam, basically, if you throw it to the receiver's right. You're leading him towards the corner of the end zone. What's he do? He leads him back into the defender, ends up breaking up the pass. You don't get the shot play there. That drive ends up ending, and I think it was a punt or a field goal. I can't remember specifically how that drive ended, but that was a shot play that should have been there for him. It was open. It was available. He just wasn't able to make the good throw that he needed to. And it should have been an easy one. He should have been able to place that in a spot where only his guy could make a play. And in the end, his guy basically played as a defender. The third thing that I noticed, pressure is a real problem for him right now. And it is both real and it's stuff that he's feeling that's not necessarily there. And what I mean by this is there were moments when he really is pressured. And instead of making a calm collected read and either maneuvering in the pocket and making a quick throw or getting rid of the ball and throwing it away and living to fight another down. He's panicking. He gets happy feet real quick, real, 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 real quick. And then he like feels like he needs to make an immediate decision, whether it's the right one or not. He just goes with it. It's like a gut instinct of fight or flight, right? And his is always flight where he's got to get rid of the ball as quickly as possible. He doesn't want to get hit, doesn't want to end up with that guy around his feet. And so he gets rid of it and that's leading to interceptions. And that's been probably the key component. I don't have the exact numbers on how many of his interceptions are a result of pressure, but I have to imagine it's the vast majority of them. And that's the case for a lot of quarterbacks, but in Missouri's offense, the way that they play right now, it's, it's far too often. And the other problem is the, the real versus the fake pressures that he's feeling right now. Some of the time he's running into pressure where he will have a clean pocket, and if he moves up in the pocket, he's going to be able to continue going through his progressions, but instead he drifts a little bit to his right, or he drifts a little to his left, and he falls right into pressure, and he forces himself to make a quicker read than he needs to. So those are the three things that I've noticed that are themes throughout the season, but especially in this game against Vanderbilt that really stood out to me as I went back and rewatched every throw we had. He's not trusting his eyes. He is feeling pressure, both real and fake, that is getting to him. And he's just missing those throws that he has to make that are the shot plays over the top. You don't have to make five, six, seven of them. But when they're there, you got to connect. So those are the biggest things that I, I've noticed from him. Seems like he's got the pocket presence of Blaine Gabbert and the talent of Corbin Burkstresser, which is probably a little bit mean. No offense to Connor or, or Corbin, but... He's just, it's not the type of quarterback play that's going to have a dynamic play happen. It's the type of quarterback who's going to have the receivers make the dynamic play or the running back, right? Like it's, you know, the scheme and the talent of your skill position players are what he's relying on to make the plays and they're not making the plays and he's not putting them in a position where they can make a play. So you just have this dink and dunk offense where you, all of your scoring drives are 13 plays long. And guess what? College offenses aren't very good when you have to make 13 plays in a row to move down the field. You need kind of some explosive plays. At this point, Missouri's offense, believe it or not, the passing offense is like top 25 in the country. I think they're maybe top 30 now after this game. So like they they have successful plays to the pass. The issue is that they are 115th in passing explosive plays. 115th. So where do they get their explosive plays? On the ground. The rushing, the rushing attack, 
Tyler Bate is a god, right? We've talked about this. The running game overall, though, ranks 77th in the country. But Missouri is the number one explosive running team in the country as of week 10. So all of your efficiency plays, all your short plays are through the air. All your big plays are on the ground. <laughs> and so it makes it, it makes it tough to, to get those big plays because just running plays on the ground is tougher to do just by nature. Right. Cause they all, they all start in the backfield passing plays. I mean, God, you just run a nine round and just chunk it. And sometimes you get it. Sometimes you don't. So the fact that the explosive plays aren't happening because this receiving cord can't break free really limits your offense. And when you have to give it to Tyler Beatty 32 times and he rattles off four big explosive plays, it's great. But the other 28 are getting bottled up or he's going five or six yards. That's really tough to be uh, an offense that moves that way. So you need a quarterback who can either run it or make the right decision consistently. And for the most part, Connor Bazelak will make the safe decision. But like you said, Sometimes that decision-making ability betrays him and he's overly cautious. He's overly safe. Um, you know, I just, I think right now, let me double check. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So uh, Tyler Beatty has the most targets in the passing game of anybody on this team with 51. Also, by the way, he has the most rushes on the team with 157. So there's one guy. Connor trusts in the passing game. It's Tyler Beatty. The other guy he trusts, Kiki Chisholm. He has and 11 more two... receptions Tyler Beatty does than any other player on the team right now. Yep. And if those two aren't open, sometimes he looks uh, to task Dove. But that's about it. So it's a very predictable offense. It's a very safe offense. And unless Tyler Beatty is busting a big one, you can pretty much shut it down. So I guess uh, let me ask you this, PK, uh, because... Our head coach just also happens to be the offensive coordinator who also works with the quarterbacks a lot. Obviously, Bush Hamden's the, technically the quarterbacks and receivers coach, but are you putting any of this blame on the lack of Connor's development on Drinkwitz or Hamden? Or is this just no. like, hey, this might be who Connor Bazelak is? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I mean, if you want to put some blame on them, that that's fine. That's fair to do so. I, I think it's it's tough to blame a coaching staff for one player's lack of development. Now, if this becomes a theme, yeah, I, I think you can start looking at whoever you want to and saying, okay, what, what's going on here? But we've seen Drinkwitz work with quarterbacks in the past. This is not the first time that he's been in this situation um, and he's done a pretty darn good job of it in his history. Now, it's different being a head coach, certainly, and he only had the one year at App State, so it's not like he was there to to program build, but I'm I'm not going there yet. The other thing is, like, I think this is just who Connor Bazelak is, and I'm not even necessarily sure that it's inherently a bad thing to have a dink and dunk offense. Like In college football, that can work. A lot of the air raid offenses that you see across college football over the last 15, 20 years, they're, they're dink and dump. And that's, it's a horizontal raid really in a lot of ways. And so you can win that way, but you also have to have the threat of the big play. And that's the issue with Basilek right now is there's really no threat of that big play over the top. It's happened against the lesser opponents, but much like early on in the Drew Locke experience where it was, Oh, okay. Against Delaware State Southwest, you can throw for 500 yards, but against Kentucky, you're going to throw for 120. 
that's kind of what it's been like with Bazelek this year, where against the lesser opponents, yeah, he can have a couple of shot plays that end up going over the top because he sees people breaking wide open and he needs that. But against South Carolina later this year and certainly Georgia and even against Vanderbilt, he doesn't see the receivers breaking wide open and he doesn't trust what he's seeing with his eyes. And therefore, he just doesn't really take those shot plays. And even when he does, he doesn't connect on them because the throw's not quite right. So I, I think that's where I'm at with him is this has become a a high risk, low reward offense. And that is in large part because of the quarterback. You can live with a low risk, low reward. You can't live with a high risk, low reward offense, because what you end up getting is all of the interceptions with none of the reward. And that that just can't happen. And that's where they're at right now. I mean, you mentioned the air raid. I think that's a it's an interesting point. The other aspect of the air raid is that they moved really, really fast. Sure. Because they knew, hey, we're not doing a lot of different things. Like, it's literally like 10 plays, if that. It's just all based off repetition and making the right read. But they added just the warp speed to it so that, yeah, you might know it's coming, but your legs are totally shot and there's nothing you can do about it. And they've outconditioned you and they start pulling away. The problem, though, is then you you decrease the variance, because if Missouri is the worst team, which they are against a lot of their opponents that they're going up against right now, you want fewer possessions, not more. Exactly. And when you end up playing at that warp speed, you increase the number of possessions. This would to, to explain this maybe a little better. It's like if you played a 10 game series against a team as opposed to a one game series, right? If you are the lesser opponent, you want the variance. You want to play them one time, not the 10, because it's much easier to beat, for example, Alabama once than it would be to beat them six out of 10. Chances of you doing that are very, very slim. But on any given Saturday, anybody can beat anybody. So that's that's kind of what I'm saying here is you just you want fewer possessions because that'll increase the variance. And Missouri needs that variance right now. Right. And the air raid when it was constructed was an underdog offense. Mm -hmm. People weren't doing it a lot. Now it's almost the go-to offense. Ohio State runs it. Oklahoma runs it. So the counter is to be slow, plotting, big, fat, run it down your throat. Like that's that's the counter to the counter. And you know it's all cyclical. It's going to go back around. And you know the big the big teams are going to adopt the underdog strategy. It becomes the overdog strategy, and then something else comes along. But Missouri, for all of its thinking and dunking, moves at about an average pace. I think they're 52nd in the nation. So like, they're not going super fast. They are trying to keep the variance low. Like you said, just fewer possessions so that they can, they can try and win that way, which is fine. But you know, it's just, I guess the thing that it keeps coming back to me is like, what, is, what is Connor Bazelak good at? He's good at avoiding sacks, but he doesn't get pressured a lot. Just kind of based off the offense. When he does, he freaks out and throws it. And he's good at hitting the out route. I feel like that's rep replicable by any quarterback at the power five level, especially a blue chipper. Exactly. Like what you're good at is the, is the base qualifications. Okay. Serious question. Are we sure that Brady cook's going to be worse at the things that make Connor Bazelak good? Are we sure he's going to be worse? No, because yeah. I'm, no. I'm not. Every time that we've seen now to be fair, it's been rare that we've seen him, but when Brady <laughs> cook has come in, the things that he's good at are basically the things that Connor Bazelak is good at. Yeah. And he might even be better at them in some ways in terms of the efficiency of it. He's thrown 11 passes. He's got 10 completions. It's a 90% completion rate. 
Now that uh, spoiler alert, that's going to go down. <laughs> it is. He's got two touchdowns. He's only been sacked once, but last year he was averaging ten point three yards per attempt on his seven passes. Again, I understand that's not like it's a very small sample size. I get that, but yeah, you're asking, you're saying, oh well, he's worse at those things. Are you, I, I don't believe you. I think he'd be just as good. He looks he looks confident. He looks competent too. Like I just no. I don't think there's any drop-off between the two. Then maybe one of them is better in practice. That's obviously the case. One might be better at diagnosing defenses. But at some point, you got to... I don't know. We've we've talked about this a lot. I understand that. But like it, it's just... Basilak has not developed. It was cool last year. It's way less cool this year. And, and, mm. and you want to see is that, that improvement, and we just don't. Um, so Brady Cook is one option. There's a solid chance that he gets to start if Connor Bazelak is still injured. Um, oh, what what did Drinkwood say uh, yesterday? Right? What did he say about the quarterback situation when on his uh, conference call? So today on the conference call, he basically said, "I'm not telling you anything, and we're closing practice to make sure that you don't find out anything." Um, so there there was that. Uh, For what it's worth, the players today at their media availability basically said we're excited to see Tyler Macon and Brady Cook out there. So I would expect to see both of those guys at some point on Saturday. The telling quote to me was yesterday, Tuesday, we're recording this on Wednesday night, Tuesday at his press conference with the media, Eli Drinkwitz was asked specifically what he's seen from uh, Tyler Macon's in his development since getting on campus. And here's kind of the money portion of his quote said, Macon is one of those guys that works out all the time on his own, comes in, works on his weaknesses, and he continues to improve. But I think, you know, obviously the knowledge of the playbook and the repetition of the schemes probably aren't where you wish they would be, end quote. He continued from there, but that's the money quote. I think it's becoming clear based on those comments and his comments after the game on Saturday and saying that if it was a different situation, a.k.a. if they were throwing the football, he would have gone with Brady Cook in that spot and not Tyler Macon. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty clear, at least in Drinkwitz's view, Tyler Macon doesn't have a good grasp on the playbook right now, which shouldn't be shocking. It's hard to grasp a college playbook when you are an 18, 19 year old freshman quarterback who is playing your first organized football in two years because he didn't play last year because his season got pushed back to the spring and he was in spring ball at that point in time. So that that's not shocking and it's not an indictment necessarily on Macon, but if he doesn't play a whole lot on Saturday and if we don't see a bunch of him the last few games of the season, that's probably your strong explanation on why. And the Drinkwitz book is also notoriously funky. Like apparently he uses really weird vernacular and a lot of it's very, it's not super intuitive. Um, Now I know that under Gary Pinkle, every Friday, the team would take a test about the opponent and like the game for the next day for Saturday. And the questions would range from like things like what is the mascot of the opponent or like, what's the stadium that they play in? Like, have you just been paying attention to all of your meetings? Like name the coach, name the quarterback, name that sort of stuff. But it was also in this situation, <clears throat> what was, you know, what's the script that we're running off of? If we are down X, what Y plays are we running? And like, it was like actual heady stuff that you had to pass. If you did not pass the test, you did not get to dress and play in the game. 
And that's everybody had to take that test, including backups. <clears throat> so I know that college football coaches do these sorts of things where they're like, you need to show me that you are ready to take the field at any given moment. And some players do well in that situation and some don't. Also, <clears throat> like you said, Tyler Macon is a freshman and he didn't play last year. It could just be getting back into the reps of being a football player is tough. You have a tough book to try and understand. And it's the college game. And it's just, it's just harder. It's harder. And a lot of times, especially like blue chip high school athletes, you've been the most talented guy on your team since fourth grade. <laughs> and you, it just came very naturally to you. And the effort was there, but you didn't have to put a lot of effort into like learning or improving. And sometimes that can be a shock when you get to the college level. And guess what? Everybody you're playing against was the best in their, you know, their entire lives. So there are a lot of things that you can point to and try and say, this is why, this is why, this is why he's not seeing the field. It doesn't really matter. The point is out loud, Drinkwood said he doesn't have a good grasp on the book and he's just not ready. Now he's athletic enough to provide a threat on the ground, <clears throat> which I have talked about. Connor Bazelak is not doing. You talked about how he's about the same, the same quarterback through the air last year. Guess what? He's also the same quarterback on the ground. Last year, he was averaging 3.4 yards per carry. Now he's averaging 3.5. Yay, progress. <laughs> but he also had two touchdowns last year, um, which we have not seen. <clears throat> but again, Tyler Macon goes out two rushes, eight yards, and a touchdown. Granted, against Vanderbilt. Granted, at the end of the game. But he still did it. I'm not saying, you know, Tyler Macon is, you should just put him out there if he doesn't know, if he doesn't know the book, he doesn't know schemes. I'm not saying that. But you see how the team reacted when he got his touchdown on the ground. You see his arm when he threw against Simo, just the rocket down the field. And you're like, oh, God, if he could just put it all together, you could see how awesome this offense can be. And even if he's not ready, it's just, oh, it's tantalizing and, and you just want it now. You want it now and it's not there. And that's also part of the frustrating part. But um, I, I, I think. If my guess would be if Bazelak is still injured, we see Cook and maybe Macon comes in for some package plays, but I, I certainly don't think he's going to start on Saturday. And I wouldn't want him to, to be clear. I'm with you. I think that's kind of the way it's going to work. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I am curious, do they give him like a series against Georgia or do they go with, like you said, package plays where maybe it's third and two and he's going to be in there because it's an obvious running situation. Mm -hmm. uh, first and 10 and maybe they go play action because Georgia is expecting run in that spot. I'm mm -hmm. curious to see how they decide to script that stuff because that's what it'll be is scripted, especially in the first half. Um, I think it could go either way. I would understand either decision, honestly, but against Georgia, neither Brady cook nor Tyler Macon are likely to look good. In fact, most of them are likely going to look bad mm -hmm. because every quarterback looks bad against one of the best defenses in the history of the sport, as we mentioned on our Sunday podcast. So don't judge either of these guys based on what they do on Saturday. Judge them based on what they do the rest of the schedule against South Carolina, Florida and Arkansas. The only thing that I'm really hoping for, Nate, is that you see flashes. If you could see a couple of really nice throws from 
Brady Cook, where he escapes pressure and is able to make a, a nice pass down the field, or Tyler Macon is able to make a couple of guys miss and he runs for seven yards uh, outside, like whatever it might be. I want to see some some moments where you're like, okay, conceptually, that's what it should look like, because Mm -hmm. that's really what it's going to need to take for this coaching staff to be able to move on to South Carolina. And even if Connor Bazelak is healthy at that point in time, give them opportunities still down the stretch. And that's what you got to hope for if you're a Missouri fan is do they show you enough to force the coaching staff's hand? to give them give them more reps against South Carolina, Florida and Arkansas, because that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. You also just got to sell the fan base on something at this point. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to make a bowl game, sell us on the fact that we're not making a bowl game because we're developing some younger guys. And maybe you are, maybe you aren't. We talked about the defensive side. We see a little bit from the young receivers, younger offensive linemen were worked into the lineup um, last week, specifically Luke Griffin. Messiah Swenson has seen more playing time. Nico Hay is great. Um, we're not going to see any running back, but Tyler Beatty. So like, whatever, but just kind of sell us on the vision. If you're not going to make a bowl game. Um, and if you are obviously, you know, play the guys are going to help you achieve that goal. But if you're not, then, you know, show us that there's, there's, we're working towards something. Um, you know, as far as Georgia goes, yes, they're playing the game against my wishes, they are playing this game. Yes, Georgia has more blue chip athletes starting on defense than Missouri has on their entire roster. This is a fact. It's also true that when Missouri played SEMO, SP Plus saw there uh, as a point differential between those two teams as 17.4 points. Missouri was considered about 3.2 points better than an average D1 team. SEMO was considered 14.2 points worse than an average D1 team. That's a 17.4 point differential. It's also true that currently Missouri is considered 2.6 points better than an average D1 team. And Georgia is considered 29.1 points better than an average D1 team, which means the gap of quality between Missouri and Georgia of 26.5 points is larger than the gap between Missouri and SEMO. These are all true. These are all true facts. And it's not great to hear. It's not something that we're very excited to have to watch our beautiful boys get pummeled for 60 minutes. But again, this is part of building a program. And God, to his credit, Eli Drinkwitz is very excited about this game. Of course he is. He always says the right things in public. Uh, so I know he's willing to, to give it a shot against the number one team in the country. Missouri's not going to win. There's there's just no way I can feasibly see it happen unless Georgia has a historical level of collapse and Missouri plays out of their skulls like they have not played in two seasons. <laughs> um, but it's going to happen, and we'll have a quarterback that goes out there. We'll have some starters go out there and do what they can. And then I think at half, uh, Kirby's going to, pack away the swords, bring out the backups. And I think at that point, you'll see some newer guys on Missouri's side anyway, uh, try and get some experience. And that's, that's basically all you're looking for in a game like this. So are you ready for a couple of stats? Love stats. Let me hear it. Georgia's defense is number one in the, uh, the land right now in points per game allowed. They're allowing all of 6.6 points per game. Hmm. 
the gap between Georgia's defense, which is first in college football, and the number two defense right now is about seven and a half points. That is the same as the number two defense and the gap between them and the number 43 defense in the country. Oh, good God. Again, the gap between the best defense and the second best defense is the same margin as the gap between the second best defense and the 43rd best defense in the country. Tell them who the second best defense is. The second best defense so far this season is Cincinnati. They're allowing 14.3 points per game. For what it's worth, kind of the the context of where they are around Clemson, Texas A&M, Iowa, NC State, they're right all around 14 to 16 points per game allowed. Number 43 is Toledo averaging 20 or allowing 22 points per game. And they're in the same range as Florida and Virginia Tech and Pittsburgh and Wyoming. Hmm. So, yeah, Georgia. Hmm is roughly twice as good as the next best defense. <laughs> they have allowed six touchdowns this year. They have scored three. That is insanity. And that's what Missouri Opposing is teams. Th- this is insane. Opposing teams, when they get to the red zone, score 57% of the time. Do you know how insane that is? They score not not touchdowns. They score fifty seven percent of the time. They score touchdowns twenty eight percent of the time. Four of the fourteen opportunities that opposing teams have had in the red zone against Georgia, they have resulted in a touchdown. Four of fourteen. <laughs> That's insane. To, to put that in context, by the way, Missouri is one of the worst teams in all of college football at allowing touchdowns in the red zone. They have allowed 28 touchdowns in their 34 <laughs> opportunities against a rate of 82 percent. Heck yeah. They're just generous, right? That's all. <laughs> like to look out for our friends. Opposing teams have six plays of 20 or more yards, or excuse me, of 30 or more yards against Georgia. Six. Six. They've played eight games, man. I think Central Michigan got that in the first game. Oh. Missouri has allowed 11. Or excuse me, they've allowed 11 of 40. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you to not watch the game. That's, that's certainly not what I'm going to do. I'm I'm too old and I got better things to do than watch this live. I can I'll watch it on repeat when I need to do my BTBS. Missouri has allowed more 60-yard plays than Georgia has 20. <laughs> oh my god. All I'm saying is that there are a lot of fun things you can do in a given day. If this is your kink, not your knock yourself out. You want to watch it and and rant online, you know, whether on Twitter or on a message board, do it. I'm not going to tell you not to. I also just know life is short and uh, there are happier things you can do in your life. That's all. Where... I I am honestly curious. I wonder where this would rank among the biggest point spread upsets in recent years. So the spread right now is what? 30... 39 and a half. Oh, it's climbed to 39 and a half. That was what yeah. it, where it was last I checked. 
I guess upsets, college, football. I know UNLV lost last year to an FCS team that was, I think, favored by 40. Was that Howard? Howard, Howard against UNLV. That was in 2017. They were a 45.5-point favorite. 45 So Stanford in 2007 was a 40-point underdog against USC. Those mm-hmm. are the two biggest upsets of the last decade. So this would be the third biggest of the last decade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stanford, 38 and a half. Yeah, Missouri Syracuse. is right now a 39 and a half point underdog. There you go. Syracuse over Louisville in 2007 was a 36 and a half. Texas State over Houston in 2012 was 36 and a half. So yeah, that's basically the the, the line there. And all, all of those, the winning team was on the road. The upset team was on the road. So. Interesting. Yeah. Makes sense given the spreads, but yeah. I that that I guess this is kind of what we're saying, right? Missouri is basically this weekend, as you mentioned whenever we first started previewing this. Missouri is the FCS team. They're they're the blood donor in this game. And it sucks, man. It really mm-hmm. does. I, I wish this wasn't the case, but it's the reality. I mean, a- according to the Vegas point spread and their over under, like the over under is 59 and a half and the spread is 39 and a half. I mean, Vegas is expecting this to be like 50 to 10. Yeah. And that's basically what they're telling you is the implied point total. And I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if it ends up getting uglier than that. And that's not a, it is a knock against where Missouri's at right now, but it's a reality. And also it's, it's a a point in favor of Georgia's is just that good. They're Mm -hmm. just that good, man. And the, the other thing is, in terms of styles make fights, the old boxing cliche, they are a terrible matchup for Missouri. If they were a team that was run and gun and they were out here throwing the ball all over the yard, maybe Missouri would have a chance at, at coming up with a couple of big plays defensively. And maybe uh, Caleb Evans comes up with a couple of big ones, right? They would rather not throw all day. Georgia would rather just line up and run the football down your throat all day long. And that is the exact thing Missouri's defense doesn't want to see. Yeah, it's it's bad. I mean, I think. Oh, God, yeah. Georgia runs uh, on standard downs. They run 68 percent of the time. That's 16th in the nation on passing downs. They run 37 percent of the time. That is 45th in the nation. So when you happen to have two five star running backs on the roster. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they just you also have the ball. Uh, you also have five stars all over the offensive line, too. So Samir White, James Cook. Come on down. You are the next contestants on how to become a Heisman winner against Missouri, Missouri's defense. Good luck. Yeah, yeah they're they're going to run the ball a lot. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. I know JT Daniels is is constantly listed as a starter, and Stetson Bennett has basically been the de facto starter. Guys, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's going to be the quarterback. The dude's going to throw twenty passes at max, and even then, that would be way too much. So yeah, it'll be. Um, it's going to be a beatdown, and that's okay because we're going to look back on this two years from now and go, hey, remember when uh, Heisman finalist Makai Wingo was getting pushed around by Georgia all the time? That was funny. Look at him now. Look at him all grown up. At least that's the plan. Look so. at us. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> Not me. Uh, so, yeah, find something do, fun to do. Uh, BK is going to be uh, batching it up on his own, probably doing some yard work. I'm going to be 
picking up vomit with my hands and watching Moana. Um, I mean, basically the same as what Missouri fans are going to be doing on Saturday. Let's yeah. be honest. I'm going to be yeah. picking up leaves and throwing them in the dumpster and you're going to be uh, uh, picking up vomit. It, it'll be great. It'll be all great. the same. If that's all not a metaphor same. for for Saturday, I don't know what is. But you know what? We're going to come to you. Once the game is done, we're going to talk about it. I promise you. We'll give you our analysis like we always do. That's why they pay us the big bucks. So strap in. This is going to be the, the, the kind of the biggest ugly game uh, that you're going to see. Well, the next week's cool. interesting. It is going to be interesting after that. And there's going to be some tougher games too, but like certainly nothing to this degree. So no. be be excited. Be excited. There's better days on the horizon. Florida might have quit. Arkansas, I have no idea if they're going to be interested in playing that final game of the year. And South Carolina is a legitimately winnable game. So the next three after this one, there there is legitimate reason to be interested in those. This is just not on that list. So if you want to do something better on Saturday, I would recommend doing so. Yeah, yeah. Do whatever you want. And just look, look, it's never as bad as you think. Because I can guarantee that you didn't leave your wife for a stripper named pole assassin who owns a monkey who bites a kid on halloween like you didn't do any of that kids google it you didn't do any of that so you're fine pole assassin that's oh my god what i wanted this podcast to be nothing about the monkey but bk told me otherwise so you all are welcome anyway that's the show for today as always, we appreciate the downloads and the subscriptions. You can leave us a comment because we love all types of feedback from you guys. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Nate G. Edwards. He's at BK Sports Talk. And of course, you can follow the Rockin' Flagship at Rockin' Nation. And you can listen to BK in St. Louis on the Radio 101 ESPN. We appreciate you tuning in this time. We'll try to do better next time. And until then, MIZ. See you.